Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here, and not only because it's uh, much warmer than it is in the Northeast. I went out with some friends on Friday night, and it was minus nine degrees. We've had, as I've, I've not, not ceased telling people, 105 inches of snow since January 23rd. My city where I live, Worcester, Massachusetts, is now officially the snowiest city in the United States of America. So it's a real pleasure to be in California for a couple of days, and a, even more of a pleasure to be here at Thomas Aquinas College. Um, as was announced, the title of my talk is Lincoln and the Moral Foundations of Democracy. I'll have a lot more to say on that subject. But uh, maybe say a word about President's Day, which I think is a bad holiday. Um, I think it was a bad idea to replace Lincoln and Washington's birthdays with an amorphous President's Day holiday. We surely don't have in mind the utterly forgettable presidencies of Millard Fillmore and Chester Arthur or the lamentable presidency of uh, Lincoln's predecessor, James Buchanan. And uh, there's even an argument, well, it's perfectly fine to have a Martin Luther King Day, not at the expense of Lincoln and Washington. It seems to me that all three dates ought to be celebrated. But nonetheless, we, make, we, make, uh, we, do, we do what we can, and it seems to me that um, the way President's Day is honored at a place like here is, a, is exactly right to, to give, to encourage high reflection on statecraft, on statesmanship, on the, on the moral foundations of a regime of self-government. By the way, already uh, in 1886, in his classic work, American Commonwealth, Lord Bryce, a British traveler, Robert Nisbet once said of Lord Bryce's American Commonwealth that it would be the most famous book on America if Tocqueville had not already written Democracy in America. That's a wonderful book. And the most memorable chapter is a book written 20 years after Lincoln's death, a chapter written 20 years after Lincoln's death entitled, Why Great Men Are No Longer Elected President. Uh, and that's certainly worth thinking about. There was a string of mediocrities. Maybe Grant wasn't a mediocrity, but he wasn't a, a great president. Uh, but there was a string of mediocrities after Lincoln's death, and certainly we've had better and worse presidents in the 20th century, but nobody to compete with Lincoln. Lincoln was assuredly a great man, and I think a great president. And we have special reason to reflect on Lincoln this year. 2015, as you know, is the 150th anniversary of his death at the hands of John Wilkes Booth, and it is also the 150th anniversary of his incomparable second inaugural ad address, about which I'll have more to say later in the course of my presentation. When I, when I speak about Lincoln and democracy, um, I do mean to affirm that Lincoln was a, th a, a, a thinker and even a poet of democracy. He was our great poet president. But I do not endorse the judgment of people like Walt Whitman and Richard Rorty, who in their different ways present Lincoln as a, what I would call a theorist of democratic pantheism a kind of populist president, a celebrate, man who celebrated the people's will. As his debate with Stephen Douglas shows, his famous debates with Stephen Douglas shows, Lincoln knew popular sovereignty, the, the sovereignty of the people, could readily degenerate into despotism. He mocked Douglas's evocation of the sacred right of self-government, since it meant 
the right of some men to exercise despotism, willful mastery over others. For Lincoln, there were standards of human nature and natural justice that limited the power of choice or the right of people to do what they will. I've always been struck by the, um, you might say, the emptiness of the pro-choice argument. Uh, uh, Stephen Douglas was the, the first progenitor of that argument. The, uh, you know, he, he was allegedly indifferent to the question of whether or not states and territories chose to vote slavery up or down. What matters was choice. Self-government meant uh, contentless choice, the choice of slavery or the rejection of slavery. You can certainly see the structural similarity of that argument or affirmation to the abortion question. Um, Lincoln, the poet theorist of government of the people, for the people, of the people, of the Gettysburg Address, also knew the need for democratic statesmanship, for the unequal contribution of some, of men of honorable ambition, to the cause of liberty and self-government. I think the more you study Lincoln, the more you realize that this great defender of human equality against the sin and crime of slavery was also a man who appreciated the real inequalities which were part and parcel of the human condition and were necessary even to democratic self-government. On this theme, a range of commentators from Harry, Harry V. Jaffa to his most recent biographer, Richard Brookhiser's, I recommend a book to you, came out about six months ago called Founder's Son, which is one of the best of, and it's a, Brookhiser has a gift for writing, you know, that, not unlike the modern biographer who tells you what, what the, the subject had for breakfast and, you know, goes through all the correspondence and painstaking detail, Brookhiser writes 300-page biographies that go right to the heart of the matter that uh, know, know, know how to concentrate on what matters rather than on uh, peripheral details. But it seems to me both Jaffa and Brookhiser are right when they highlight the importance of Lincoln's youthful address at the age of 29 years of age in 1838 to the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, his theme was that great supplement to political founding, what Lincoln called the perpetuation of our political institutions. And in that address, uh, Lincoln chronicles a new lawlessness that he saw adrift in the land. He discusses how the bonds of the revolutionary generation and cause are fraying in a post-revolutionary America. The threat that he highlights is mobocracy, leading to the weakening of the attachments of the American people to the rule of law and constitutional order. So you might say what uh, the 29-year-old Lincoln does in his great speech on the perpetuation of our political institutions is describe the political psychology of despotism, how lawlessness can contribute to the disenchantment of the middle classes who see that their, their rights and their property are no longer being protected, they look for a strong, strong man who can be better provide for their wants and needs. And so Lincoln foresaw a future where uh, men of towering genius took advantage 
of this process of the weakening and fraying of political ties in the United States. But I'd like to to do now is read to you a great and revealing passage from um, the Lyceum Address. Um, Many great and good men sufficiently qualified for any task they should undertake may ever be found whose ambition would aspire to nothing beyond a seat in Congress, a gubernatorial or presidential chair, but such belong not to the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle. What? Think you these places would satisfy an Alexander, a Caesar, or a Napoleon? Never. Towering genius disdains a beaten path. It seeks regions hitherto unexplored. It sees no distinction in adding story to story upon the monuments of fame erected to the memory of others. It denies that it is glory enough to serve under any chief. It scorns to tread in the footsteps of any predecessor, however illustrious. It thirsts and burns for distinction, and if possible, it will have it, whether at the expense of emancipating slaves or enslaving free men. Is it unreasonable then to expect that some men possessed of some man possessed of the loftiest genius, coupled with ambition sufficient to push to its utmost stretch, will at some time spring among us? And when such a one does, a new Alexander, a new Caesar, a new Napoleon, it will require the people to be united with each other, attached to the government and laws, and generally intelligent to successfully frustrate his designs. So Lincoln knew that there were enduring human types who would do what was necessary to find a path for themselves, however destructive of liberty and natural justice. He appreciated the limits of egalitarianism in the sense that uh, the the democratic political community could not solve the human problem. Tyranny was a problem coeval with the human condition, coeval with political society. And his solution, as he alludes to in the final uh, sentence of the excerpt I read to you, is well known. A political religion of law, bindingness, and fidelity to the Constitution. Why am I reading this passage to you? Uh, Edmund Wilson, the famous literary critic, uh, in a book called Patriotic Gore, written 60, 70 years ago, argued that Lincoln was that member of the family of the lion and the tribe of the eagle who built a new path for himself by freeing the slaves. By the way, uh, Herndon, his law partner, who uh, wrote a book of reminiscences about Lincoln after Lincoln died, famously described Lincoln as a little engine of ambition. You know, I would argue honorable ambition, but nonetheless a little engine of ambition. There's something tempting about Edmund Wilson's reading of Lincoln uh, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's, it's at least one way of understanding the relationship between his ambition and his later um, political task of, of dealing with the slavery problem in the United States. But it seems to me Professor Harry Jaffa's uh, explanation in his 1959 book, The Crisis of the House Divided, is more complex and convincing, convincing than Wilson's. 
Uh, Jaffa argued that Lincoln was precisely a third type of, of human being, neither the run-of-the-mill politician or the member of the family of the lion and the tribe of the eagle. He was instead, we might say, a shepherd or saw himself as a potential shepherd who, whose task it was to protect the self, self-government against tyrannical wolves. Now, this might sound messianic or uh, extra-constitutional, but according to Professor Jaffa, the, the, the youthful Lincoln saw a role for himself primarily as an educator of the American people, as somebody who would educate them to the dangers, the, the dangers in the future of a new kind of tyranny arising in the United States from from precisely those members of the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle, these men of towering genius. Um, so the, the youthful Lincoln, if, if my suppositions are correct, uh, saw, saw a, a future for himself as a kind of educator and protector of the American Republic. Yet as Richard Brookheiser points out in Founder's Son, this remarkably intelligent, self-made man had reached something of a dead end by the early 1850s. Uh, He belonged to a political party, the Whigs, uh, that were dying. Uh, The Democratic Party was the dominant party in Illinois. By the way, the Whigs were famous, if you don't know much about the Whigs. The Whigs were the party of, they stood for what they called the system, the system of internal improvements in the United States. And they also made much of the constitutional and moral character of the American people. Lincoln, you may know, was elected in 1846 to one term in Congress before being elected president in 1860. He only served one term in Congress as a Whig from Illinois. Uh, By the early 1950s, he had experienced not only a kind of waning political career, but ups and downs in his personal life. He had a long, tumultuous, I think loving, but tumultuous marriage with Mary Todd Lincoln. By that point, he had experienced the death of a four-year-old child. And at the same time, as Lincoln's political career waned and his party was dying, we saw the meteoric rise of his nemesis from the 1850s, Stephen Douglas. Um, Yet, Lincoln gets his chance, if we want to call it that, with the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. uh, And the architect of that repeal was none other than Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. So before 1854, the year Lincoln becomes a major actor in national politics, the country had largely remained faithful to the founders' policy of only tolerating slavery where it existed out of necessity. And if you look at the major speeches of Lincoln from the 1850s and the early 1860s, he insists that the only possible accommodation of slavery can be out of necessity, to tolerate it where it's already established with the hope and goal, as the founders had articulated it, of leading to the gradual extinction of slavery. 
And um, um, that, that all changed with the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. Let me say a little, little bit about the Missouri Compromise. Its great architecture, wa our architect was Henry Clay, the, Ken the Kentucky senator whom in, uh, Lincoln had described in his eulogy for Henry Clay in 1852 as his beau ideal of a statesman, a man who loved his country uh, partly because it was his own, but mostly because it was a free country and who burned with zeal for its advancement because he saw in such advancement prosperity and glory uh, uh, the advancement of human liberty, human right, and human nature. Well, Henry, Henry Clay had been the architect of a political settlement in 1820, which uh, held the slavery problem at bay by allowing Maine, which had formerly been part of Massachusetts, to enter the Union as a free state, for Missouri to enter the Union as a slave state, and then for all slavery to be forbidden north of the latitude-longitude line 3630. That, that Missouri Compromise would be tweaked but reaffirmed by the Compromise of 1850. But in 1854, everything changes with Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act. With the Kansas-Nebraska Act, territory north of the 3630 line were open to be choosing whether or not to become slave or free states or territories. According to the much vaunted doctrine of popular sovereignty, again the doctrine of the sacred right of self-government, as Stephen Douglas put it, people were free to vote slavery up or down as they chose. Lincoln, this was the great galvanizing cause for Lincoln, because Lincoln saw that with the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, slavery no longer was rejected in principle, but it was affirmed as a legitimate moral and political choice. And for Lincoln, the rejection of slavery in principle was the great moral and political desideratum. There could be a compromise with slavery out of necessity to hold together the Union whose principles were ultimately anti-slave, but there could not be an accommodation with slavery as a legitimate moral and political choice. That was the nub of all the major addresses of Lincoln in the 1850s. So as I said, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, with its concomitant repeal of the Missouri Compromise, galvanized Lincoln. He gave a great speech in Peoria, Illinois, in 1854. As Richard Bruckheiser puts it, in that speech, this is the Peoria speech, all the elements of Lincoln's mind and personality finally came together into something coherent and ultimately powerful. And let me just say a word about this great Peoria speech. I, I sometimes, it's about 30 pages long. It's quite, I was reading Brookhiser's book and I was quite, quite amazed. Uh, Lincoln delivered this speech, took about three hours, uh, and uh, he delivered it simply from notes with no text. And it, it is a perfect speech. It's eloquent, it's bracing, it's 
full of the most uh, careful argumentation. Uh, it, it recites uh, crucial history about the United States, and it makes the moral and political case against the corruption of the American ideal of self-government in the name of indifference to slavery. Let me read you and comment on a couple of passages from the Peoria Address that get to the heart of the matter. Um, Lincoln believed that Douglass's doctrine of indifference to slavery really covered over what he called covert real zeal for the spread of slavery. And Lincoln said, I cannot but hate this. He writes, I hate it, this, this indifference covering over covert seal for the spread of slavery. I hate it because of the monstrous injustice of slavery itself. I hate it because it deprives our Republican example of its just influence in the world. It enables the enemies of free institutions with plausibility to taunt us as hypocrites, uh, causes the real friends of freedom to doubt our sincerity, and especially because it forces so many really good men among ourselves into open war with the very principles of civil liberty, criticizing the Declaration of Independence with its affirmation that all men are created equal and insisting that there is no right principle of action but self-interest. We'll come back to this, the centrality in a moment, the centrality of the Declaration of Independence in Lincoln's moral and political reflection on democracy. And also um, Lincoln's repeated affirmation of the limits of self-interest as an adequate ground for a democratic political community. And the nub of the matter in, his, in the Peoria Address for Lincoln, as it would be in the later Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, when both Lincoln and Stephen Douglas were running for the Senate, the nub of the matter was how we understand self-government. Both Lincoln and Douglas understood and repeatedly argued that the doctrine of self-interest is, in Lincoln's words, doctrine of self-government is, in Lincoln's words, right, absolutely, and eternally right. The difference had to do with whether or not self-government was compatible with chattel slavery. As Lincoln said, the issue is whether the Negro, as he called him, was a man or not a man. If he is not a man, why in that case, he says, a man may, as a matter of self-government, do as he pleases with him. But if the Negro is a man, then, Lincoln argued, it is a total destruction of self-government to say that he cannot govern himself. When the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and also governs another man without his consent, that is no longer self-government, according to Lincoln. That is despotism. And Lincoln added, if the Negro is a man, why then my ancient faith, by which he meant the Declaration of Independence, teaches him that all men are created equal and that there can be no moral right in connection 
to making one man's, one man's making a slave of another. It's very interesting, if you look at the Peoria speech closely, um, Lincoln makes two arguments. One, an argument from authority, and one, a kind of philosophical argument rooted in a kind of moral sense philosophical argument. He appeals to what he calls the sheet anchor of American republicanism, which is the Declaration of Independence, and argues that our ancient faith, the teaching of our fathers, uh, makes clear that slavery is absolutely incompatible with the principles and practices of democratic or republican self-government. But he also makes the argument that in their heart of hearts, everyone knows that slavery is wrong. And he gives an example. He says, in the South, where most people would publicly affirm uh, the justice of slavery, and that was a big change in the South because until the 1840s or 50s, most Southern statesmen and publicists would have said slavery is wrong, but we're stuck with it, as Jefferson put it in a famous letter from 1820 dealing with the uh, Missouri Compromise. We've got the wolf by his ears, and we can't let go, right? Suggesting slavery is wrong, but we're, we're nervous about letting go of the wolf because he might devour us. But uh, Lincoln, uh, the, the argument started changing. You started getting Southern theorists and publicists and statesmen making the argument that slavery was a positive good. But Lincoln said, even the advocates of slavery, he says, won't let their children play with the children of slave dealers because they know that there's something abominable about the practice of treating human beings like chattel, of confusing human beings with wild hogs or wild buffaloes, as he put it. Um, so he, Lincoln, on the one hand, vehemently challenged the claims of men like John Calhoun and Senator Pettit, uh, who both made the argument that the Declaration of Independence was, in their, in their language, a self-evident lie. But he buttressed that appeal to our ancient faith with a moral argument about the deeply illicit character of slavery. And he also argued that slavery, like despotism, was founded in the selfishness of man's nature. And he says opposition to it must be grounded in man's love of justice. In a rousing passage in the Peoria Address of 1854, he writes, Repeal the Missouri Compromise. Repeal all compromises. Repeal the Declaration of Independence. Repeal all past history. You can still not repeal human nature. It, it still will be the abundance of man's heart that slavery extension is wrong. And out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth will continue to speak. And again, you can see the influence of that moral sense argument. People somehow know, they feel, they experience the wrongness of slavery whatever their specific verbal affirmations about the slavery question might suggest. Now, I'd next like to turn to two brief fragments that Lincoln wrote about um, 
slavery. And here you can see, these are private reflections he wrote for himself, one in 1854 and one in 1858. You can really see the, 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 the extent to which uh, Lincoln, uh, they, these, these fragments reveal his powerful and pithy appeal to logic and moral reason in the struggle against chattel slavery. Um, the first fragment um, ultimately highlights that, that same point he had made in the Peoria Address about um, the connection between unadulterated, self, unadulterated self-interest and the principle of mastery or slavery, uh, mastery or slavery, uh, mastery or despotism. Let me read it to you. If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may of right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker? Take care. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well, if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Again, you can see the same argument about this eternal antagonism between the self-interest at the heart of despotism and slavery and justice, which involves some moral, uh, involves ultimately a moral repudiation of self-interest as the ground of a free political community. Um, so that's the first of the two fragments I wanted to highlight. The second one is from 1858. It's very brief, and Lincoln entitled it On Slavery and Democracy. It's uh, three sentences long. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy. You can see here, Lincoln provides almost a categorical imperative, if I may put it that way, to respect humanity and the rights of others. If you want to use the idiom of the tradition of political philosophy, he, he wants to move the American political order from a one-sided or unilateral emphasis on self-interest to a more capacious sense of moral obligation. From Locke to Kant, or maybe from Locke back to Aristotle. But some, some recognition that um, uh, the rejection of slavery is not simply, I don't want to be a slave. It's also, I have a positive duty not to enslave others, not to participate in the despotic imposition of my own will. I think that's a very beautiful and suggestive little fragment. And uh, you can see much 
moral and philosophical wisdom at work in both fragments on slavery and democracy. Another thing that strikes me about Lincoln is the fact that uh, there was there was, uh, he had a sense of the tragic, an almost philosophical equanimity. And um, he, he did not share the ordinary politician's endless preoccupation with the here and now, even though Lincoln himself was, as, I, as I'm suggesting in the, in the sectional crisis of the 1850s, very much galvanized and centered upon the pressing issue of the day, namely the extension of slavery to new states and territories. But th these are maybe my famous fa favorite words in Lincoln. This was delivered to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society in the fall of 1859, sort of a Wisconsin State Fair. But in those days, they didn't have roller coasters and cotton candy. Picture a lot of hogs and... Uh, bullshit, you know, and you know, uh, it was uh, a pretty uh, down-to-earth place, right? So anyway, L Lincoln gives this great speech, which is a kind of defense and articulation of free labor, of the value and dignity of free labor. And don't forget, his opposition to slavery was also rooted in a defense of free labor, a lot of public opinion in the North that was anti-slavery, above all, wanted to defend a kind of the, 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 the idea that labor ought to be free and no man ought to work with, for another man without his consent. But Lincoln takes the opportunity at the end of this reflection on free labor to wax poetic and philosophical about um, the nature, the passing character of even a great country like the United States. He writes, it is said an Eastern monarch once charged his wise men to invent him a sentence to be ever in view and which should be true and appropriate in all times and situations. They presented him the words, and this too shall pass away. How much it expresses how chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction, and this too shall pass away. And yet, let us hope it is not quite true. Let us hope, rather, that the best, by the best cultivation of the physical world beneath and around us and the intellectual and moral world within us, we shall secure an individual social and political prosperity and happiness, whose course shall be onward and upward, and which, while the earth endures, shall not pass away. George Will once said, there's something vaguely un-American about this passage, because it challenges our faith in progress. Um, Lincoln sees that without the greatest effort of statecraft, of statesmanship, the great goods associated with a regime of self-government will wither away. And someday, this too shall pass away, the great American experiment in democratic self-government. And that, I think, is worthy of our deep and abiding reflection. I think any talk on Lincoln would be derelict if it didn't highlight his remarkable powers 
of rhetoric. I've already referred to Lincoln as the great poet of the American political order. But let me just say a, a word about the wonderful perorations of the first and second inaugural addresses. Uh, I think when you read these perorations, you see the remarkable combination of political prudence, moderation, with rare spiritual elevation. And it seems to me that combination is, the, is, 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 is above all characteristic of Lincoln. Um, so you remember the closing lines of the first inaugural. Remember this is given right on the eve of Southern succession. And Lincoln is pleading with the Southerners not to, not, not to succeed from the Union. He says, intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulties. But he says, ultimately, it's up to the Southern states whether or not they choose to succeed. But Lincoln also makes clear he's taken an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and defend the Union. I am loath to close. We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may be strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. And now it gets really good. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone, all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely as they will be by the better angels of our nature. Remember, Lincoln didn't have speechwriters. You know, you know now the presidents don't write their own stuff. They have speechwriters, and they send it down around to their bureaucratic team, about 15 people, and they all make changes. You know, we end up with those glorious State of the Union addresses that I don't watch. I read, this, I read the uh, summaries in the paper the next day and weep. Uh, <laughs> the peroration of the second inaugural, you'll all remember, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I keep on using the word incomparable to describe Lincoln's rhetoric, but I think that's really true of beautiful and moving passages such as the ones I just read to you. Um, and by the way, by the time of the Gettysburg Address in, in 1863, November 1863, Lincoln's new birth of freedom, as he called the American people to embark upon, is no longer compatible with previous thoughts of Lincoln about settling freed slaves in Liberia or Central America in his speeches from the 1850s. He knows, that he knows slavery's wrong. He wants to see it abolished gradually, but he doesn't think blacks and whites can live together in a regime of self-government. So he's open to colonialization schemes. He's open to settlement schemes. But that new birth of freedom meant no more, no more uh, 
thoughts about deporting blacks to different lands. Blacks and whites had to live together and make self-government work at home. And as he put in the Gettysburg Address, the Civil War was the great test of the proposition whether all men are created equal, that a regime dedicated to the proposition of the all men are created equal can long endure. Gettysburg is a great tribute to the nobility of those who died for freedom, but it is also a call to the living to finish their unfinished work, the great worker task of self-government. Now, as some of you may know, many on the so-called paleoconservative right literally hate Lincoln and see him as the architect of a progressivist, egalitarian, centralized regime, where they see him as a proto-tyrant, just like John Wilkes Booth did. Um, now, I th it seems to me this view has been definitely refuted by the likes of the great Lincoln scholar Alan Guelzo, who has pointed out that Lincoln was a faithful Whig constitutionalist and a partisan, not of big government, but of limited government. The Civil War, the Civil War made the federal government expand exponentially, but it also contracted almost immediately after the Civil War. To blame all the developments of the 20th century on Lincoln or to see him as a proto-progressive is both ahistorical and wrong-headed. If you want to see Lincoln's, see, uh, Lincoln's practical philosophy of American self-government, it seems to me, which, which is, um, uh, is it's beautifully stated in an address he gave to uh, some uh, soldiers of the 166th Ohio Regiment in Washington, D.C. in 1864. He was addressing a group of soldiers who were about to re return home to family and friends. And um, he, 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 wanted, he wanted to speak to the soldiers about why their sacrifices were worth making. He said that the perpetuation for our children's children of a great and free government was truly a noble task. Um, I am a living witness, he wrote, that any of your children may come, may look to come here as my father's child has. It is an order that each of you may have through this free government, which we have enjoyed, an open field and a fair chance for your industry, enterprise, and intelligence, that you may all have equal privileges in the race of life with all its desirable human aspirations. So this is why this nation was worth fighting for, as Lincoln put it. It is for this that the struggle should be maintained, that we may not lose our birthright, not only for one, but for two or three years. That the nation is worth fighting for to secure such an inestimable jewel, unquote. Very beautiful passage. You see this idea of, the, of, of men being equal in the race of life having a free field for their industry, energy, and intelligence, enterprise and intelligence. Uh, the idea that um, a man of, uh, of humble origins like Lincoln could ultimately become president of the United States, that this said everything about a regime of self-government. 
So I think if you read a passage like that, I think you can see that Lincoln's aspirations for democracy were not, Lincoln did not imagine some omnicompetent state or some democratic despotism that provided for all. He did not dream of a central government that was self-aggrandizing. He did not, uh, he was not a proto-socialist or proto-progressive. But again, there are, there are fevered swamps where that view is de rigueur, where Lincoln is considered to be a kind of monstrous proto-tyrant and architect of some of the worst political calamities of the 20th century. Now, um, I'm coming to the end of my remarks. I pledged I wouldn't go over an hour, so I've got a few more minutes left. Uh, I've spoken of the moral foundations of democracy, and we all know that there's an intimate connection, relationship between morality and religion. So what of religion? Um, what is Lincoln's relationship to the then Christian faith of the American people? The political scientist Larry Arnhart has spoken of Lincoln's biblical republicanism, which is marked by his consistent evocation of scriptures, culminating in the beautiful discussion in the second inaugural. We also note that Gettysburg Address's final reference to one nation under God. Yet, if we read the biographers, we know, like Brookheiser's new book, we know that Lincoln was a youthful, if private, scoffer at the Christian religion. This even became an issue in the 1846 election. His opponent, who was a Methodist minister for Congress, uh, accused him of being a scoffer at the Christian religion, and Lincoln had to issue a statement saying he had never openly scoffed at the Christian religion. Um, Brookheiser makes much of the fact that the youthful Lincoln in his 20s, for example, was a uh, sympathetic reader of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason. I don't know if you've ever read, read Paine's Age of Reason, but the Age of Reason is a, um, a systematic critique of the Bible and of the Christian religion in the name of a kind of deistic rationalism. And it's quite, uh, uh, the, the rhetoric is vehement and uh, uh, it shares some of the spirit, some of the anti-religious spirit of the, of the French Revolution. Teddy Roosevelt famously called Thomas Paine a dirty little atheist. Um, so how do we explain this seeming contradiction? It seems to me the least persuasive explanation is that Lincoln simply appealed to Christianity as part of a project to create a new American civil religion. Every reader of Lincoln is struck by the depth of his later reflections on divine providence. For example, there's a beautiful text from 1863 called Meditation on Divine Will, where he reflects on the relationship of God to the, to, the, the, to, to the two great sides in the Civil War, and he picks up that meditation, of course, in the second inaugural address. I think the inescapable conclusion is that Lincoln's soul grew as he witnessed and experienced personal and political tragedy in the course of the Civil War. In the second inaugural, 
he makes clear that God's purpose is not our purpose. And yet he counsels firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Um, there's no sanctimoniousness or self-righteousness in Lincoln's second inaugural, but nor is there moral relativism. The North, he insists, was also complicit in the sin and crime of slavery, yet we are all obliged to oppose the evil of slavery with all our might. There's a wonderful treatment of the second inaugural at the end of a 1952 book by Reinald Niebuhr that's recently been reissued by the University of Chicago Press, The Irony of American History. Niebuhr makes a nice comparison between Lincoln on the slavery question and the communism question that Niebuhr and his generation had to confront. Um, Niebuhr's argument was something like this. Communism was just as wrong as slavery and had to be fought. But at the same time, we need to avoid Manichaeanism or self-righteousness since we are all under God's judgment. And it, it, it seems to me that's really the spirit of the second inaugural, that uh, on the one hand, a firm rejection of anything resembling relativism, an understanding that we can know with reasonable certitude that chattel slavery is a moral abomination and that God is, a providential God may be punishing the American people for its complicit being complicit in a slavery regime. At the same time, that same Lincoln can appeal to charity, malice toward none, to reconciliation, etc. This all leads me to think, was Lincoln a Christian? Uh, did Lincoln become a Christian? It seems to me Lincoln was probably a never an orthodox Christian. He was too much of a doubter or skeptic. But he was no atheist. And I think it's apparent from his meditations and reflections in the course of the Civil War that he had genuinely come to believe in the living God who was the author of the moral law. Everything then suggests an affirmative answer to my question. In any case, one is struck by his rich, capacious soul, so full of spiritual depth, which never ceases to reflect on the great and enduring question of God and politics. Thank you very much.